Hey, Emily. Hi, Jeff. You know, I was scrolling on social media the other day, or maybe every day. And (laughs) one of the things I'm noticing is how many young people who are all over these apps talk very openly about the conflicted feelings that they have about work, school, and life. And they express all these feelings about anxiety and depression. They're very open. And I'm seeing them struggle with meaning and purpose, which for me reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, a really well-known verse that a lot of people quote that Jesus came that his people might have life and have it abundantly. And that's a real concern I have for people in general, but especially this very honest generation. It's hard to often connect our faith to these everyday experiences, and maybe our churches talk about that or or not. And so how does theology or what does theology have to say about our everyday life and what it means to live a good life? Is it possible now or is it only in the future? And what does that involve beyond making good moral choices? We talked to a theologian and an academic. The theologian that we spoke with is Nadia Marais, and she is a systematic theologian on the Faculty of Theology at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Her work is directly on this question of human flourishing. We also talked to Dr. Jennifer Wortham. She has a doctorate in public health and is a religion, spirituality, and forgiveness research associate for the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. And she specifically looks at moral injury and the social and spiritual intervention that happens or is needed for victims of moral injury. She's also the author of a memoir on forgiveness titled A Letter to the Pope, The Keeper of the Nest. We do want to notify our listeners that there is a brief mention of clergy abuse in this episode. We want to thank you for joining us for the Theology and Podcast. Now for our conversation. Welcome. Thanks to both of you for being here. One of the first things we like to ask is, if you were at a dinner party, how do you describe what you study? Why do you love it? Or how do you see God and that. Jennifer, let's start with you. I'm actually really grateful to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. I believe that human flourishing is really a very important topic for us to to be concerned about and to study and to promote, especially in the wake of what we've all experienced with COVID and also with what's going on in the world in terms of conflicts and all of the challenges that we're facing. My area of focus is human flourishing and specifically the aspects of moral injury that can impact human flourishing. That's near and dear to my heart, trying to understand what it is that's causing individuals to not flourish. How about you, Nadia? So to be honest, if I'm on a plane, I might avoid this conversation because you're really (laughs) trapped. And if you're a theologian, often people want to have really complicated conversations (laughs) I'm in systematic theology, an older sort of description is dogmatics. So dealing with Christian doctrine, I think 
something of the philosophy of the church. But what I, I really like is the image of this being a grammar of faith. So the language that we use to speak about matters of faith, how we believe the creeds and confessions, but also ethical concerns and debates and specific topics like the question what it means to flourish. So in terms of my own research, this was the focus of my doctoral research, was the focus on the rhetoric of human flourishing from a theological perspective and specifically coming from the landscape or the sort of terrain of how we think about and talk about salvation, so the doctrine of salvation. Because I think theologically, if we come from this perspective or from the perspective of faith or even the church, this is a, a good fit, a place from which to, to think and speak about what it means to flourish, to you know, consider what, does the, what are the implications of the good news of the gospel? What does it mean to be blessed? Those kinds of questions. So I'm really interested in that. Of course, people have strong opinions about this as well in South Africa, as elsewhere, I think in the States and, and many places, prosperity gospel and, and the kinds of dilemmas and challenges and affirmations that that sort of raises, you know, around what, what does God will for us? Is it prosperity? Is it wealth, health? And what is our role in this picture? So I think there can be really dangerous sort of elements also to this approach theologically, but uh, it's a really exciting, I think, newer field in theology. I love reading about this and then talking about it. So it's good to be here. Thank you. So glad to have you both. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got interested in this topic, even the more specific topics like, for example, Dr. Wortham, moral injury. How does one come to be interested in or to study moral injury or perhaps the, the wider topic of human flourishing? My background is in public health and I have spent primarily the, the last 25 years of my career in public health practice. And after I finished my doctorate, I really wanted to apply all the wonderful work that I had done and, and work directly with public health departments and create programs and services to improve and enhance public health. And in recent years, I wanted to go a little deeper than what I could do in public health practice and to come back to my academic roots and to start to understand really what does it take to help people flourish. And in public health, we focus on what we call social determinants of health. And the social determinants of health are the things that are really a part of the foundation of what makes a society or a population healthy. And as, as a public health practitioner, I would work on public health programs and, and work with a lot of different disciplines on what could we do to enhance the health and safety of the populations that we were serving. And over the years, I got a little frustrated. I found that there were some heavy burdens, some things that we really couldn't address, things around homelessness and things on the economic side. We were constrained. There was only so much money and only so many provisions that we could make. I also wanted to look at how we could really start to impact people's perceptions of themselves and their mental health and their behaviors. And so I, I thought about the social determinants of health that were really not very traditionally incorporated in public health. And those were the dimensions of religion and spirituality. And in the public health world and in the medical world, it's very secular and spirituality and religion is not part of the lexicon. 
And so I was really intrigued by that. And I wanted to understand why that was and what we could do to address that. Other parts of the world, other cultures, spirituality and health and mental health is all intertwined and it's, it's, it's aligned. But in the Western civilization, it's not the case. So I started looking for programs and I found the Human Flourishing Program. And I felt like this was a really great place for me to deepen my inquiry and to see if there were ways that I could bring spirituality and religion into the public health domain. How about you, Nadia? How did you get into this? This was first introduced to me by my doctoral supervisor. So Professor Derki Smith is now at the Princeton Theological Seminary. But at that time, I went to him and I said, listen, I'll work on anything. What do you suggest? And this was one of his suggestions, actually. So I really have to credit him for suggesting this. When I started reading up on theologians, people like Ellen Chari, who also taught at Princeton for many years, who have written on the question of God and the art of happiness, I was just so intrigued, you know, with this conversation, because it seemed like a number of academics from different fields and disciplines were addressing this question of happiness. How do theologians think about what flourishing is? And how does our talking, our rhetoric, and our grammar shape the discourses into which we enter? So what do we offer these often interdisciplinary conversations that are specifically theological, but also not exclusive? So how does it actually aid or help some kind of a vision or bigger picture of living a meaningful life, of well-being, of living a good life, contributing towards the common goods, not only individually, but also within a society or a community? These were the kinds of questions that really intrigued me when I finally got into it. I certainly, as a theologian, hear about it in the church spaces a lot when people are trying to correct for ideas of Christianity or salvation where we we are saved by Jesus and and that's sort of it, or we're, we're waiting to go to heaven. And so when you start actually talking about justice and shalom and the new creation, then I think human flourishing is a way that people start to talk about that a lot, but not often in a really filled out way, like what exactly do we mean by that other than we want human flourishing? (laughs) So I'd be curious maybe how each of you would generally define human flourishing, either within your discipline or from your research, what broadly are we talking about here? So human flourishing is a broad topic. The human flourishing program at Harvard focuses on really looking at the empirical sciences and a pretty intensive empirical application to understanding and addressing what human flourishing is and the impacts of various aspects of human flourishing. So we were focusing on measuring things like well-being in the workplace and the impact of family and marriage and parenting on flourishing. We look at social connectedness and belonging and, and how that impacts your well-being. We're doing a lot of studying around mission and purpose and character. And love, we have experts that are focused on how love is impacting flourishing. And then finally, meaning and purpose. And meaning and purpose are very important aspects in in flourishing. So we have scientists across, uh, researchers and scientists across a broad spectrum of disciplines, social scientists, theologians, public health, medicine, 
a range of the quantitative sciences, biostats and epidemiology to put together the full picture of flourishing. It's a broad discipline and lots of subcomponents of disciplines that are evaluating flourishing, but we really focus it on it from multiple perspectives. And is there one in that list, one or two, that you could maybe just talk a few minutes about some of the key things that you might find within some of those broader categories? Well, for example, I think something that's probably very interesting to this audience here is our work around religious communities and religious participation. So we have done empirical studies on multiple populations of individuals who've been looked at longitudinally, like over their life course. And we found, for example, that religion, specifically religious participation, has a very positive impact on health outcomes. And so that's one of the areas of study and inquiry that we have in the program. I think that is a good transition to how you might think about it, Nadia. What maybe is then going on then when we think about religious participation and why that might lead to human flourishing? What has been really helpful to me has been, on the one hand, how Charles Taylor, the philosopher in Secular Age, talks about the connection between flourishing and living a meaningful life. And and he makes the point that seeing our lives as part of a bigger story, you know, that we are part of something bigger, whether that necessarily translates to faith, I think, yeah, that might be an interesting conversation in and of itself. But I found that really helpful, that flourishing, in other words, has to do with living a meaningful life and, and situating our identity and our work and yeah, just our, how we see our place and our role in the world and in our communities as part of something bigger, that it's not up to us to determine the meaning of our lives. He makes this point that often in modernity that we think it's up to us to, to sort of make our lives meaningful and to, to flourish through sheer effort and force of will. And then he says, but it's impossible. It's something that's bound to fail because it's exactly this bigger picture, this bigger story that we actually need to flourish. So that, on the one hand, is, has been a really helpful image to me. On the other hand, I find myself very much at home in David Kelsey's. So he says, to flourish, from the Latin word florere, so to flower, uh, he says, means to, to carry fruit and to carry seed, to bear fruit and to bear seed. And he says what for him this means is to be a blessing to our contemporary neighbors, so those and not just human neighbors, but those around us right now to bear fruit, but then also to live in such a way that we are a blessing to future generations, which here I think you already has in mind the ecological crisis, you know, and certain scarce resources. But how do I act and decide now so that not only those around me can also flourish, so my flourishing is bound up with their flourishing, but also perhaps those that I will never know. So how do I make choices now in terms of my everyday living, how I eat, how I do I drive a car, those kinds of questions, where I live, how I do the work that I'm doing, so that future generations can also flourish. So in other words, to, to bear seed. So for me, those two images are quite powerful and really emphasizes the point that And I think the intuition in the shift from a rhetoric of happiness 
to a rhetoric of flourishing has to do with something of this, that it's not just about my flourishing, you know, about my, where I'm at and how I feel and whether things are well with me and I'm experiencing well-being. But can I really flourish if the people around me, if my neighbors around me don't? And how do we balance those goods as well? That's really important. So I recently completed a chapter for a book on transforming adversity. And I, I talk about suffering and how it's a question I pose to our program director. How can I flourish when those I love are suffering? And it's a very important question for us to ask. So Nadia, I'd love to hear more about your perspective on that. How, how does one flourish when people are suffering around them? That's a fascinating question. David Kelsey makes the point. He says that often we sort of conflate flourishing with health and wealth. And he says this is really dangerous, that you can only flourish if you're wealthy and you can only flourish if you're healthy. And so he asked the critical question that you are also asking, but not just pertaining to those we love. He asks, can we flourish if we are sick and dying and if we are poor? A really challenging question. How do we speak as theologians? about the good news of the gospel. Yeah, is it possible for us to speak about flourishing to people who are sick and dying and to people who live in poverty? Or is there something that we should rather withhold to remain silent? But his point is that flourishing is not flourishing if we can't also flourish when we are sick and dying and yeah, live in poverty. So it's a really challenging I don't always know how to answer that, to be honest. I agree. It is really a challenging question. I, I look at, of course, our responsibility is to bring the gospel to individuals that are suffering and that are poor, because that is food for the soul. And, and while they may not be able to experience all the dimensions of flourishing the way somebody who, who has a life that's more plentiful, there are aspects of, of our being that can flourish, even when we're facing those extreme experiences. And I, I, I often like to look back at the work of Viktor Frankl and how he was able to survive his experience in the concentration camps and actually transcend that. And in a way, the almost bittersweetness of having everything torn and ripped away and really understanding at the core of that human existence and what brought a measure of solace, not maybe not joy, but solace and, and to him was just those, those little moments where, where people had acts of kindness towards one another in the most dire circumstances and to bring just a, some measure of comfort to one another. That, of course, was the essence of his work on meaning and, and what it means to be human. And so when we look at flourishing, I think about flourishing in terms of the circumstances that we're in. What level of flourishing can we attain given the circumstances that we are in or what we have experienced in our lives? And so that, that gave rise to my interest in, in my work in moral injury. But I'd love to hear more about how the gospel can bring that food to the soul for those people that are in difficult circumstances. That's a great question. Let's direct that to you, Dr. Murray. I know that one of the perspectives that you've reflected on is liberation. 
as a way of thinking about soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And then, Dr. Wortham, you've just mentioned this new emerging field of moral injury. So the idea of bringing the gospel to people who are suffering or experiencing poverty, I'm so glad that the two of you are working on these areas. And I'd love to hear, perhaps from you first, Dr. Murai, about how we think about liberation, what it means in your context or perhaps in your life and in your theology. In my research, in terms of flourishing and salvation, I was really interested in reading the work of three theologians. So Gustavo Guterres, in whose work I found, and especially in his his work on salvation, that the notion of living a fulfilled life, a full life, is extremely important. You know, that God is the Dios de la vida, the God of life, for him really sits behind so much of the, I think, the active work he foresees us doing in addressing poverty, economic inequality, and so on. So this vision of this living God who wishes life and fullness of life, if we think of of John 10, 10 also on us, I think is extremely important to a figure like him. So so that was a really helpful and and fascinating read for me. The second theologian that that I found really helpful and and fascinating is Mercy Odioye, the African woman theologian. For her, the notion of salvation very much had to do with healing. And she explains very clearly that she means not healing only in terms of physical or psychological or even relational healing, but, but really in a very encompassing sense. So her vision of what it means to flourish has to do with God healing us and, and also especially sort of relational healing, healing between people relationally and between communities and, you know, in a broader sense as well. The third theologian that I, I read, the South African theologian, Russell Botman, who died a few years ago. He was very well-known rector also of our university, but placed a lot of emphasis on flourishing as dignity. So the sort of questions of human dignity. And for him, an absolutely essential concern was access to higher education. So I, if I recall, the way in which you formulated was to say that we're the son of the farmer, so the landowner, and the daughter of the farm worker, in South Africa, typically some of the poorest people, these two children can come together to study at the same university in the hope for a better life, to flourish, to offer these opportunities also to family, in a certain sense, a new future, a new generation. But for him, the vision of flourishing had to do with human dignity and, and everything that we ought to be doing as Christians it, to work towards that, or not even just Christians, but people with a moral conscience, you know. So really, in, in his view, South African citizens, those who are bound by the constitution of the country, in which human dignity is one of the three core values of this constitution, but I found it interesting, these various visions coming from liberation theologians that addresses this question in slightly different ways, coming from a specific context, but really, I think, broadening out so many of perhaps the misconceptions we sometimes have of how narrow flourishing can be or should be. I'm likewise fascinated. I think about this arena of human dignity as one of the sites where we sustain the most scarring, but often very quiet injuries. 
And I'd love to hear you talk about that, Dr. Wortham, perhaps to explain to our listeners what moral injury is and how your work addresses it. The work that I'm doing on moral injury is really fundamentally about dignity. And so I got interested in this aspect of human flourishing last year. I was invited to do a presentation at the Vatican on the impact of clergy abuse to family members. And tragically, the reason for this, because I've been working with the church, because both of my brothers are clergy abuse survivors. And I've discovered both on a personal level, and then as I've looked and inquired from an academic perspective, that when one experiences abuse as a child, as an adult, the essence of abuse diminishes the dignity of the person, whether it's oppression, whether it's systemic racism, whether it's domestic violence, harassment in the workplace, sexual harassment. These these are all things that impact one's dignity at a very foundational level. When I was preparing for my presentation at the Vatican, I, I was looking at the literature on spiritual injury and really wasn't finding much that related specifically to individuals who experienced abuse. And then I stumbled upon Jonathan Shea's papers and work on moral injury. And uh, I became fascinated. I found that they were looking at moral injury in the military and veterans who had experienced complex PTSD. And these individuals weren't getting better. They were being treated with all the conventional treatments for many years. And there was a whole cohort of patients that just, they, they just weren't getting better. Their symptoms weren't resolving. In some cases, they were getting worse. And so Jonathan stepped back and started looking at patterns and trends. And what he found in all of the cases of patients that weren't getting better was that they overall were experiencing deep sense of shame and guilt. And these were symptoms of things that had happened to them in some way in their experience in their military service. And so he went back and looked at a lot of the literature going back and dating to the philosophers and how people had experienced those types of things in in war and in, in times of atrocities. And he felt that at a fundamental level, when one's morals were violated, that there was kind of an injury to the soul that really needed to be addressed and in therapy. So they reached out and brought in chaplains to help work with these individuals who are experiencing these symptoms and PTSD. And there was improvement. And he wrote about it and that gave birth to the modern era of what we're looking at in moral injury. There were other scholars looking at things like moral distress and healthcare workers that were experiencing ethical dilemmas. And, and in years past, people have looked at spiritual injuries, but I felt in some way that this really resonated with me. And I, I used moral injury as the basis to talk about how family members experienced clergy abuse and, and the, the deep betrayals of their institutions, whether it was in the Catholic Church or other, other faith traditions. For me, it was kind of a, a lot of lights went on, and I felt that at a fundamental level, individuals experiencing challenges to their dignity, if they were abused, were experiencing deep challenges to the core and moral fabric of their being, and that I wanted to investigate and, and do more research in that area. So, so that's what we're doing today. So I wonder, Dr. Wortham, if you could talk a little bit about maybe the role of those chaplains or what you're seeing the role of spirituality playing out in your research in that healing maybe of the dignity. And then Dr. Murray, if we could talk about maybe what the gospel says in that situation. The topic moral injury now is flourishing in and of itself in terms of 
interventions and research. I'm actually launching a research symposium in August, and I've had over almost 150 people who want to join the symposium, and over half of them are clergy. And when we think about the impact that clergy could have, really, it's about helping to restore the dignity and and hope and meaning to someone's life. What some of the psychologists have found is that clergy are in the best position to do that. This really is targeting individuals who who have a background or a history or a relationship with God in some way. So it's, it's not that we're trying to convert individuals of moral injury to come to a certain faith tradition. We're actually studying moral injury across all the faith traditions, but we're trying to understand what is the role, what role can clergy play, and how can they help resolve some of the inner conflict that people are experiencing that is compounding their PTSD and creating anxiety and depression in their lives. I was thinking now of the work of Serene Jones, Union Theological Seminary in New York, who writes about trauma, and she says that she has this image of a trauma that disorders our imagination. So she says what trauma does, it it destabilizes our place in the world, our theological imagination, but also not in the sense of fiction and Harry Potter and so on, but really how we see our place, the meaning that our lives have and so on in the world. And she says, and then it's a whole process to sort of reorder that, to in a a sense heal also that question. You know, if you feel threatened and uncertain in the world because things that you expect and anticipated didn't play out the way you thought, there is a process of then asking well, what is my place? How should I imagine my myself, also my body within this specific space? Who can I trust? So I, I found that also really interesting and, and challenging that it is also a question of imagination, you know, how we think about ourselves in, in the world and the meaning of our lives. I think you asked about the, the sort of what the gospel can offer. In a way, I'm a little bit hesitant to sort of respond to that because I think a lot of people have a lot of self-confidence in responding to these very serious and sometimes very complicated questions too quickly, you know, in a sort of blasé manner, very superficially and with answers that actually doesn't help anyone or any, doesn't address anything and too often sort of breezes over injustice. Things, I mean, with the example that was used now should address to say, but, you know, there is this question of, of how we envision flourishing, but then there's also the question of, <laughs> are we acting justly? Are we, are we not also the perpetrators? So I think for me, that, that would be very important to state immediately. But I think what, what, at least what I, in my reading, have found is that the language that the Gospels use, if we think, for instance, of Matthew 5 and those sort of blessings, the Beatitudes, uh, which has, carries the notions, rhetorical notions of fullness of life, living a good life. There's very much a concern, I think, right at the heart of Jesus' preaching. Think again of the Gospel of John, chapter 10, with the good life, living a full life, flourishing, we could say. And so we encounter this language, I think, both in the New Testament and in, in the Old Testament. And often, It has implications for sort of economic equality. Also, in terms of real world questions, 
I think often also questions around resilience, if we think, for instance, of blessed are the meek. So I think that the language is definitely there, these metaphors and this, this wonderful sort of imagination is definitely cultivated in the Gospels. So often, I think for a lot of people, I have this picture of salvation as my soul going to heaven. That year, we encounter a metaphor and a sort of imagination of various writers that have so much more in view, that have in view our relationship with other people, that have in view also us living a good life. And and in a certain sense, where we are, so not magically lifting us out of our circumstances, but finding meaning also in the small things that are perhaps the big things, like being kind, I think was, was also mentioned. Others' kindness towards us, God's kindness towards us in in the grace that we receive and experience. I think that for a lot of people, that is a deep source of of comfort and of care and of sort of hope and encouragement to, to say that at the heart of the good news of the gospel lies God's kindness, God's friendship with us. This grounds us in the midst of our circumstances as well. But I think it is sometimes used in a blithe manner. I was thinking also now of that text from Jeremiah 29, 11, about God wishing for us to prosper. The context of that text of the nation in exile, really experiencing the worst of it. You know, it's a refugee nation. But we forget that. We forget something of the bigger picture and that this has to do with a, a whole group of people it's not an individual sort of promise or so I think there's so much that is good that sometimes becomes distorted in the way in which we encourage one another but really at the heart of it I think lies this concern with flourishing with God's concern that us and especially the poor the little people most of all you know the people like the teenage pregnant Mary flourish and be seen and be the bearers of good news and grace. Thank you for that. I appreciate the pushback on the question and not wanting to answer too easily because I think that the these issues that we're talking about are really the things that force us to not answer quickly and to do more deep thinking about, about what theology has for us, what scripture has for us, and and really, you know, how the world is working. So hopefully these kinds of conversations help people move beyond short, easy answers. Totally agree. I think the injuries are too deep for shallow and quick answers. And I'm wondering if I can take us to the practical end of this part of the conversation. A couple phrases are standing out from what both of you have said. Dr. Marie, you asked the question rhetorically, who can I trust? And Dr. Wortham, you talked about the deep betrayal of institutions. Many of our listeners are going to be community leaders, whether they're starting or building communities of believers on a campus or whether they're clergy members. When we think about just getting started, trying to craft a a smaller community, Dr. Moran, I know that you're a clergy person, and Dr. Wortham, I know that you are very seriously involved in Catholic Church. Where do clergy people or community leaders really begin? Is it in the imagination? Are there practices I don't want to be as crass as saying do's and don'ts, but how would you guide someone who's leading a community 
to promote flourishing in their small cross-section of what they're responsible for? I think the most, one of the most important virtues that a leader can exhibit is being true to themselves and being authentic and connecting at an authentic level with the people that they're serving. And I am a big believer in servant leadership. Leaders are elected or emerge really to serve the people. And so it's not about power and control or wealth or or prominence or positions. It's really about how well you serve. And I think about servant leadership in the context of Christ. And Christ was a great leader and, and a great teacher. But he was first and foremost, he saw himself as serving people. And so for, for me, it's, it's a fundamental question is how do you serve? And, and what, is your, what is your motive for being in that position? Is it to gain prominence and stature and, and to build up yourself? Or is it really to provide the best service that you can to, to your community? And so that, that to me is really a fundamental question of what I would tell a new leader is to really understand their motives and to then be authentic and to really connect with people at a deeper level. That will bring meaning to that leadership role and that will bring meaning to those relationships that will be very difficult to challenge. Wonderful. How about you, Dr. Ray? In terms of practices, another great question. I, I was thinking of two things. So on the one hand, confession, and on the other, the sacraments. So I think that that moment in a service where the congregation stands and they confess their faith together, I often feel overwhelmed in that moment knowing that, you know, across the world, people that I will never meet and never know in languages that I don't understand, in cultures that I will never encounter, do the same thing, confess their faith in Jesus Christ. I think across time, you know, with believers long dead, people that are not yet born that we will also never know Something of that knowledge, knowing that this bigger picture, this bigger community, the moment we stand and confess our faith, we, we stand in relationship with those people. And so for me, I think that in terms of a practice of flourishing, I think that's extremely important because it is a recentering and a reordering moment. And especially if we, if we experience sort of disorderings, trauma, something of being carried by others, that even if I remain silent in that moment, that the confessions of those around me and, you know, around the world and, and people before me and after me can carry me. And even if it takes time, maybe eventually remind me that my life is meaning and purpose and dignity. I think in terms of the sacraments that when we baptize people and this is the moment where we remind one another that we don't belong to ourselves and we belong to Christ. And we confess that it's not only in our living, but also in our dying and our death. And whatever the manner of our death, however we die, however badly that process is, and however suddenly that may be, our belonging, our flourishing is safeguarded outside of ourselves. You know, it doesn't lie in our hands. I think that in baptism we are reminded of and that makes it for me a practice of flourishing and and I think we can also talk about the Lord's Supper as a practice of flourishing that gathering together around the table partaking of 
the bread and the wine being reminded of Christ's sacrifice, body that was broken, blood that was spilt, that once again, this is a centering practice in the church, you know, that we remember that this is where we belong. Even if once again, it's not up to us how we feel in the moment, we are carried by a very old practice that really tells us just be kind of in that space. And so for me, I think confession, the sacraments are practices of flourishing crucial to that, at least in the in the church. But if I can just maybe say a last word, in everything I've, I've read, the one thing that has meant the most to me personally, is sort of this idea that flourishing is rooted in grace. We can talk about all these different metaphors and none of this makes any sense. It becomes completely incoherent and a lot of white noise theologically without that one anchor. So yeah, I think for me, ultimately flourishing has to do with grace. So helpful. I love that a conversation about human flourishing that has spanned many disciplines is ending up in the conversation about self-giving and grace. I hear in both the sacraments and in servant leadership, a reminder that indeed we don't belong to ourselves, but to Christ and that we ought to be shaped in that way. And that shapes our imagination for the world that we live in. So I'm grateful to both of you for the work that you're doing and for your contribution to the podcast today. Thank you so much. This season, we're excited to become a part of the Missio Alliance podcast network. Missio Alliance invites Christian leaders into a generative, expansive, intercultural network to cultivate a holistic theology and practice. So check out their work and resources at missioalliance.org. Visit us at theologyandpodcast.com. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.